3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. Good morning, listeners. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast here at 3CR 855 AM. And your hosts this morning are Max and Kali. Hey, Max. Good morning. How are you? <laughs> I am... I'm doing all right. Mm, yeah, I'm a little bit worse for wear as well. Yeah, we're getting there. We're getting there. <laughs> but I had the absolute best time at Golden Plains. Um, so I think we're going to be playing a lot of music from musicians that were playing on the weekend. Excellent. Cannot wait. Mm. No, I'm happy to be back. It was nice of a week off, but mm. stoked to be back. Yeah, and this morning's going to be a really beautiful show. Um, first up, we're going to be playing the first episode from a mini-series that I'm producing called Liberation Loops. Um, and this morning you're going to hear a conversation that I have with Bridget Chappelle, um, or Hextape. Mm. So listeners, absolutely stay tuned because it is amazing and we are all so excited for it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then after that... At 7.45, um, we're going to be chatting with Steph Zhang about the, um, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute's recent report into, um, it's called Uyghurs for Sale. So, you know, a few weeks ago we had a chat um, about the um, oppression of Uyghur people and detention in China, and so this report is around the um, apparent forced labour of Uyghur people in mainland China. Great. And then at 8 o'clock, we're going to be talking with Jeremy Wiggins, um, who was the first transgender person in Australia to receive a Churchill Fellowship, um, and he went over and travelled to a bunch of places to investigate trans and gender diverse healthcare. So he's going to be talking with us about transgender diverse healthcare, which is super exciting because we're also hoping to be creating a sort of, yeah, a focus or a mini-series on um, transformative healthcare over the coming weeks. Mm. So this will be the first sort of interview or episode in that. Oh, Fantastic. Um, and should we go to a track now? Or go straight into the news? Do you want the news? I can give you the news. All right, we're going to go into the news. <laughs> I have some news for you. <laughs> All right, Kate Kelly with the news. All right, so first up this morning, over 100 queer filmmakers have agreed not to participate in the Israeli government-sponsored LGBT film festival over concerns of pinkwashing human rights abuses. So more than 130 people in the film industry from around 15 countries have signed a newly established pledge committing to abstain from the 15th annual Tel Aviv Fest, which is hosted in Tel Aviv. 
So Palestine's queer community initially called for a boycott of the festival due to its role in Israel's pinkwashing agenda, which it argues uses LGBTQI rights and representation to mask the Israeli government's violation of Palestinian rights. So in the state of Palestine, political um, divisions and war have resulted in sort of a fractured legal system. So where cis male homosexuality is um, illegal in the Gaza Strip, but not actually in the West Bank. However, there has been sort of a recent crackdown on LGBTQI activities in the West Bank. However, the organisers of the festival boycott are arguing that Palestinian refugees are treated poorly when seeking asylum under Israel's current right-wing government led by Israel, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. A little bit closer to home, where refugees who have been moved from Manus Island to the Papua New Guinea capital, Port Moresby, say they have endured two violent attacks in less than a month from local residents. So two refugees have have spoken um, exclusively to Guardian Australia and said that in both instances, groups of local men have surrounded their compound armed with knives, iron bars and stones and have threatened to kill them. Speaking uh, completely on the condition of anonymity, the refugees say that the first attack, which occurred at the end of February, left one with a broken leg, while the second attack on Saturday night resulted in a security guard being hospitalised. So the refugees were moved from Manus Island to Port Mosby at various points over the last two years. More than 400 refugees and asylum seekers remain within Australia's offshore processing regime, about 230 on Nauru and about 180 in Papua New Guinea. And uh, even closer to home, in Australia, the Australian Council of Trade Unions is calling for two weeks paid leave for workers forced to self-isolate due to the coronavirus. So this came as Australia confirmed its 100 case yesterday on Wednesday amid growing uncertainty over pay entitlements, especially for part-time and casual staff. So just like, according... Like some actual facts. According to Fair Work Australia, full and part-time staff members who are sick with coronavirus are entitled to take paid or sick leave or paid carer's leave for a sick family member. Casual employees are not currently entitled to paid leave but can take two days of unpaid carer's leave. So ACTU Secretary Sally McManus said there should be no financial penalty for any workers having to isolate themselves or take time off and called for the government to underwrite the paid leave guarantee for all workers, including the one in three she said would have absolutely no paid leave if they had to self-isolate. And that is it for Thursday morning headlines. Thanks, Kate. Um, Yeah, I was actually thinking a bit about the coronavirus this morning because my housemaid is now, she's been forced to go into quarantine, and I've been thinking about all of the problems under capitalism mm. that these, you know, coronavirus is actually amplifying, and yeah, the pay without leave is one of them. Yeah, I think it's it's something that's definitely come up when you see people grabbing toilet paper, mm. and it's been like, oh my God, look at how funny these people are panic buying toilet paper for the end of the world. Mm. There's been a bit of discourse around that and people feeling quite unsafe within the system. And they obviously, they don't trust their government to look after them. And you know, we just went through a huge national emergency with the bushfires and there was a bit, you know, quite arguably lacklustre leadership, at least at the start. 
And so it's sort of the system has kind of created this. I was speaking to a mate in the UK last night, and I said, are you guys as panicked as, as what's happening here? And he was like, no way. Like, <laughs> you, you're taking it to a new level. I was like, yeah, something really special is happening here. So, yeah, I think there's – and, of course, people not being able to get paid. I think there's, there's some really big critiques of the system coming out. Mm. And that these problems aren't in any way, like, unique to coronavirus. Like, this is – you know, the, the stuff with paid leave is – a problem for folks who get sick, you know, who are doing casual work or don't have those mm. security regardless, but it's just been absolutely amplified to a new level, I guess, because of the scale of what's going on. Mm. Yeah, completely. Mm. All right, well, on that note, let's head to a track. We're going to play a track by Samantha Great, who was playing at Golden Plains. Um, she absolutely just had everybody, like, in her trance. Um, so this one is called Freedom. Charge and overthought, and after that, and now I'm living, trying to give in every minute. 
My name is Carly Beck and you're listening to Liberation Loops, a series that has been created and produced from 3CR Studios on the lands of the Wurundjeri and the Boonwurrung peoples of the Kulin Nation. This is a series that dives deep into people's practices to challenge the criminal legal system and through this series I hope to discover in what ways people are already addressing violence in our communities and what ways people are learning to heal from harm. I'm a presenter on 3CR Thursday Breakfast and at the end of last year, we reflected on what stories we wanted to cover and whose voices we wanted to amplify. Our team fiercely believes in the abolition of prisons, police and surveillance. So here it is. Liberation Loops. The yarn that ties theory into practice. The fabric that creates tools for community accountability. And the fierce fire that challenges the criminal settler legal system. And Wang Yi and Chinese... My great-grandmother and her mother lived at Louis Creek and Lawn Hill, just north of Mount Isa. But I grew up in Sherwood, Brisbane, on Yagara country, and I've lived and worked the majority of my life on Yagara and Turrbal country. I've been a youth worker, a paralegal, and at points in my life I've described myself as an activist and some other points I've described myself as an organiser. And I'm currently residing in the Wurundjeri lands of the Kulin Nation. A few months ago, I was sitting in Dandenong Magistrates Court. The magistrates spent the entire day hearing intervention order applications, each with different people, but similar stories of abuse, similar histories, similar bloodlines. Is our collective response to harm to talk to the police? People who perpetuate state violence, have them serve paperwork on someone we love or used to love, and if someone breaches what that paperwork says, to have that person charged with a criminal offence. I spent the entire day at Dandenong Magistrates Court. Language translators were present for the majority of the matters. The magistrate repeated the same set of orders for each matter. Parties left in the same car. I don't know if this practice has ever worked. Are the demands of people who have experienced harm heard? Is the person who has caused harm given space to understand and process the harm they have caused? We have all caused harm and we've all been harmed. We all have to learn the ways in which we are complicit in allowing both state and interpersonal violence to occur and the ways in which, within the spaces we already exist, we can reduce violence within our communities. I've read a lot about transformative justice. Um, I've read a lot about community accountability and in fact I've tried to facilitate and be involved in community accountability processes but people have either not wanted to acknowledge the harms that they have caused or have found it difficult to uphold and do justice to the demands of survivors. I've also been complicit in watching violence occur and I've found it easier sometimes to do nothing. This work is hard, this work takes practice. I want to find out the ways that people are already trying, what has worked, what hasn't worked, and what futures people are dreaming of. Today's discussion is with Bridget Chappelle. Bridget is the founder of Sound School and they coordinate the synthesizer program. They perform solo as hex tape and as a producer they have toured Australia, Europe and Southeast Asia. They work as a sound engineer, co-organise raves with various collectives, and they are a phenomenal celloist. 
Bridget has a residency at Testing Grounds, and in our conversation, they speak about their current project to phase cancel the cops. This conversation encapsulates what this series is about merging theory and practice, learning from trial and error. This afternoon, I am sitting in Testing Grounds on beautiful Wondery lands of the Kulin Nation with Bridget Chapel. Um, welcome, Bridget. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So can you tell listeners a little bit more um, about how this project started? Sure. Well, I've been working on it for about a year now, exploring this idea of using acoustic science to challenge um, state power, I guess, state power that manifests as sound. Um, So whether we're talking about police sirens or kind of terror alert sirens, um, long-range acoustic devices, um, things like that. So forms of, yeah, state control through sound um, and also state weaponization of sound. And it started um, because I was really just speculating on whether you could apply the principles of noise-cancelling headphones to specific sounds that you don't want to hear, namely, yeah, sounds of the police. Um, The way that noise-cancelling headphones work is to... They have a small microphone on the outside of the headphones that creates then a mirror image of the sound waves that are coming in and sends them back on themselves. And what actually happens when two mirror images of the same same sound wave meet each other is that they cancel each other out. Um, And it works really well in very controlled environments like headphones. Um, And there has been some experimentation into reproducing those effects on a mass scale. Mostly it's military research and development units, um, not individual artists like myself (laughs) exploring ideas like that because it's pretty high tech. Um, So I suppose my attempts at it are meant to be kind of a start of this conversation um, into how folks who are against state power could go about creating their own versions of this technology. Um, And do you think that an activist could um, eventually use this technology ourselves? I think so, yeah. Um, I'm taking lead from really new, interesting developments into activist technology from recent movements in Chile and Hong Kong um, and things like that where we see activists using hundreds of laser pens to bring down a police drone or using laser pens to scramble um, the receptors on CCTV um, so that there's no facial recognition technology at play in protest situations. And I think we're probably not far off from seeing noise-cancelling headphones being part of an activist's toolkit for street protests like that. Um, And, yeah, you certainly could argue that maybe we could just all put on noise-cancelling headphones and that would be that. But I just was really excited by the idea of creating a collective space where um, the sounds of the state can't permeate. Yeah. And, like, already, um, you know, just, like, the sounds of the city, like, even where we are today at testing grounds, um, I find are a lot even on my ears. Um, Do you think that this new kind of project could also assist people who are living on busy and main roads? Yeah, there's um, way more kind of um, or way less political applications of it for sure. Um, And that's actually 
where you see the couple of examples that have filtered through to the commercial market. Um, that's where they've been aimed at, say, developing a device that can turn, say, your apartment window into a phase canceller for street noise and things like that. And it definitely is easier with kind of like low, constant, predictable rumbling sounds like traffic um, than sounds that were designed to cut through everything else like sirens. <laughs> I really bit off quite a bit to chew there. Um, but yeah, there's actually an example of this in Melbourne. I can't remember which highway it was trialled on of using active noise cancellation. So the same process in the kind of like highway sound um, blockers that you usually have, like those big walls that are meant to just absorb as much of the sound as possible for the houses behind them. Um, so that would be what an example of what you'd normally call passive noise cancellation, so the totally normal stuff that we all do to try and stop sounds from the outside world coming in at us. Um, but then the active version of that is to have a moving part in the system that captures and reproduces the incoming sound waves and sends them back out to create phase cancellation. Yeah, so there really are a lot of applications of it. And when I turned up today, you were just you know, sitting at your desk and you're surrounded by all of this equipment. Can you talk me through the resources that you've bound together through community? Yeah, it definitely has been a wonderful example of community um, because I've been lucky to receive really great responses from my call out for speaker and amp donations. Um, People have asked me, has it been challenging for you to make a art project in like a pretty mainstream setting that is really, really um, clearly against the police? Um, and I think the really easy and friendly and excited response I've had to it maybe goes to the heart of how probably deep down everyone hates the police, but maybe not everyone realises that yet. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, I had a really generous response to my call out for speaker donations. I've got about um, 40 or 50 now different kinds of speakers. And so essentially what I'm one of the versions of this idea that I'm building is kind of two Frankenstein sound systems that would face each other, both emitting the same siren um, to then create a really interesting um, result in the middle where there'll be moments of phase cancellation and signal scrambling and things like that. Yeah, it's easiest to achieve phase cancellation with bass waves just because they're physically longer. So, yeah, low frequency waves um, is where I've seen the best versions of this idea of phase cancellation. So probably the most successful version uh, of the project that I've done so far is to have two stacks of subs facing each other, um, subwoofers only producing like really low tone um, notes where, yeah, you can have really, really tangible phase cancellation happening there. Um, as soon as you start to send more traditional siren sounds through it, though, it gets a bit more complicated. But a new version of the project that I've started work on this week is something that's meant to be like a bit more portable. Um, and again, it's this kind of like speculative technology that's meant to be a prototype that doesn't work perfectly yet, but maybe kind of like, yeah, poses an idea or a question for what people could do next with it. Um, 
the idea of this sound shield that you could take with you to protests. So I made the face of the shield itself out of a wheelie bin lid. I really liked um, kind of like giving a bit of a nod to wheelie bin sound systems. <laughs> and then, you know, you like you repurpose the lid as well to make the shield to like, you know, keep out sounds that you don't want. Um, on the front of the shield uh, is a shotgun microphone, which is really just a hyperdirectional microphone that you can aim wherever you want. And then that runs straight into a little amp, which then runs straight into what's called a transducer, which is attached to the back of the shield. And a transducer is this um, really amazing little piece of alchemy, which maybe not everyone is familiar with specifically, but everyone uses them because they're what you find in both microphones and speakers, or like even headphone speakers, um, because they turn either sound waves into electricity or electricity into sound waves, depending, you know, how you purpose them. Um, so I just have this single transducer that hasn't been, you know, purposed in either direction yet. And a transducer in a speaker would normally be attached to this highly specialised purpose-built cone that sends out the sound in, you know, the highest fidelity possible, um, made with, you know, the best materials for becoming this device to turn electricity into sound waves. Um, but you can actually just stick a transducer onto anything, anything that will move, and it will turn that object into the speaker itself. Um, so by sticking this transducer onto the bin lid, um, it sends the sound waves straight back out. Um, yeah, so putting the microphone right in front of it and then having that go straight to the speaker behind it should, in theory, then recreate the same sound waves that the microphone is picking up and send them back at the same source. Um, yeah, so, yeah, that's just like the portable prototype of it that I've been working on this week. Um, and are there any other little mini projects that you've been working on as well? Yeah, I've been working on my own long-range acoustic device. Um, so for people that haven't come across those yet. Um, it's usually shortened to the acronym LRAD. Long-range acoustic devices come under the category of non-lethal weapons. Um, I'm doing air quotes while I say that <laughs> because they're super dangerous. But no, they don't kill or leave visible scars. Um, so they're part of there's pretty alarming developments in military technology and like kind of crowd control technology um, that are used to, yeah, usually used against civilians by cops or soldiers. And it's a device that shoots a pretty focused, very loud beam of sound over a long distance, um, up to one kilometre in distance and up to 150 decibels in volume. Um, decibels are a bit of a funny metric for measuring sound because um, it really depend, depends where you're standing and you know how good your own hearing is but um, to give you an idea 120 decibels is the usually accepted limit for the safe level of human hearing so it far surpasses that but beyond the volume um, LRADs usually broadcast um, specific frequencies that are just incredibly uncomfortable for the human ear. So usually really ear-splitting high frequencies pair that with a really high amplitude or volume. Um, 
if you had an LRED pointed at you, you would have to drop whatever you're doing and cover your ears. You would probably start running. You would probably start to feel nauseous, um, kind of dizzy and confused, even vertigo. And you would suffer nerve damage in your ears and maybe permanent hearing loss. Interestingly, there's very little legislation around LRADs, though, partly because there's no legislation around what frequencies you can broadcast at people, um, like there is for volume, sure, but not for the other factors. Most police units in Australia now possess LRADs. Um, the Australian Federal Police do, and the police departments of Victoria, WA, NT, and Queensland have all admitted to possessing these weapons. Um, I think we can safely assume that South Australia and New South Wales do as well. They just have declined to comment. Um, it's pretty terrifying stuff. And the fact that, yeah, they're used with almost no training and no legislation around it means that they could really just be cracked out at any moment. Um, and no one's going to have a lot of legal recourse against them. Um, and, yeah, hard to kind of... Um, build a case of evidence for the damage that they've done to people. So I really like the idea of us starting to match those developments in state technology with our own technologies that could defend us against them. Yeah, so I have a little miniature LRAD um, because I also like the idea of us having them too. <laughs> Yeah, I started to think, oh, I can, I can think of all these like groups I know that I could send it to. <laughs> I wonder what, what uses they would find for it. Um, I think it's really interesting where there's kind of, where technology, it always moves much faster than the law does. So even with drones, you know, like I think legislation is starting to catch up now with what you can do with drones and what you can't do with drones. But there was an interesting couple of years there where it was like just kind of cowboy territory. Um, and I think that's where we're at with a lot of this like sonic weaponry now. Talking about sonic weaponry, something that comes to mind is that um, last year on Invasion Day, um, whereas the Aboriginal resistance had all of their speakers taken off them by the police. And then this year, um, it was a really cool like, activist tool where 3CR came on board and people could download an app so that, uh, and also plug in their Bluetooth speakers so that they could hear um, the speaker, like people who were speaking on the day. And I was actually up in Munjin for Invasion Day this year and they didn't have that technology and so I was out the back and I couldn't hear what was being said. Um, are there other things that you can think of that are happening where we're using sound in a really unique way to benefit us? Well, I think it's a really great example that you bring up. I was really, really excited um, when I heard about that and I used that technology at the rally here in Nam this year. Um, I thought it was really, really cool and kind of a really interesting example of, I suppose when we talk about using our mobile phones in activism, we're usually talking about using, not using them in a material sense. We're kind of talking about, um, yeah, increasing visibility for an issue or something like that. Um, I really liked the phone being a material activist tool. Um, yeah. I do know that there's certain apps that you can get that 
will allow to use your phone as a police scanner. Um, it's quite hard to listen in on most police radio now in Australia because of just like digital FM and, you know, all the kind of encryption methodologies that they have. But you can still listen in on some frequencies. Um, I think it's pretty funny that there's just apps floating around that allow you to do that. Probably just another example of, yeah, using sound... Um, as our inversion of sonic weaponry is just, I don't know, the, the first way that I was indoctrinated into all of this was through rave culture. Um, people educating themselves about how to build sound systems, how to get them into really weird locations, teaching ourselves about electricity because we need to know how to power these things um, and just totally transforming spaces in pretty subversive ways through sound. Yeah. And back on this project, have you felt that there's times where this has just been too hard and things have failed? Um, yeah, tell me a little bit about your journey on this project. Absolutely, yes. There's been so many times when I've felt really like way in over my head um, and really frustrated that, you know, there's probably people that I don't know and will probably never meet who are funded to do this kind of research and development, but that's because they're working for, yeah, <laughs> military departments. Um, and, yeah, in terms of what I'm trying to produce, um, I've, yeah, I've felt really set back certain times, and I think maybe just not with the physical setbacks of it, because it is incredibly hard to do mass-scale phase cancellation. Um, but I think I had a bit of a um, transformation in how I was thinking about it recently when I started thinking more about how the vast majority of policing actually happens in silence. Um, like, it's all... It's cute to, like, get rid of sirens, um, but I think anyone who's ever you know, engaged in activism or, you know, other subversive activities would tell you that sometimes sirens are really useful for you to know where the cops are at certain times. I mean, I do think it's really interesting to kind of create this, like, speculative, you know, augmented reality space where sirens don't exist because I really object to the insidious way that sirens cause us to self-police, like they make you correct your behaviour as soon as you hear them. Um, but, you know, for the most part, police don't really let you know when they're rocking up. They're not going to do that. Um, and I got to thinking about that recently, actually, when Victoria Police launched this new snitch line and, like, they started advertising it with billboards all over town under the banner of for when you need us but not the sirens, which I thought was so poetic and, like, lots of friends sent the ad to me and everything. And it's really just meant to be a number that you call when you want to talk to the cops, maybe because you have information for them or, you know, you want them to come around for a chat about whatever it is, um, but you don't want them to turn up, like, then and there, sirens blaring. Um, yeah, which is pretty gross because it's really just streamlining the snitch process. And it's kind of streamlining this... Um, well, not streamlining, but it's, like further feeding the idea that we're all acculturated to have that police are necessary in our community and that, you know, they are who you should call when you have a concern. Like, you know, everyone, even the most radical people, can, like, think of certain situations in their life where there's been something going on and you don't know who to call. Um, and, you know, maybe it's, like, a situation of violence or emergency or something, um, 
and you are not going to call the cops because you don't believe in the cops, but then you're like, oh, I wish there was like a more organised kind of community alternative to that. So, yeah, having like a hotline like that is kind of, yeah, strengthening this idea that the cops are just absolutely the, you know, form of power you should go to to solve problems. Um, But it made me start thinking more about not sound as power, but silence as power as well. And, of course, you know, people who are against the state and against the police have, you know, our own, like, arsenal of ways of doing that as well. Um, Like, to give a no-comment interview, um, to, you know, support each other in not snitching, um, just to be, like, a strong, silent community in the face of, you know, these power structures trying to get information out of us. So does that mean that you're thinking of other projects as well to do with silence? (laughs) Hmm, that's a great idea. (laughs) Yeah, I still like the idea that you could turn back sirens um, just because, I don't know, sirens are just this really bossy, annoying voice that I think we could all do without, you know. Um, The the initial... um, version of a siren that made me want to conceive of this project um, was the terror alert siren system that was installed in Melbourne two years ago where they installed 190 of these just like you know stationary sirens mounted on you know like lampposts and stuff that is meant to be let off if there's like a class three emergency like a siege or something Um, or like yeah what they would consider an act of terrorism in the city Um, And it seems innocent enough, right? Like, maybe it's just, like, some, you know, big public safety measure. But, again, it's always, like, who's the public? Who's safe? Who's not safe in these situations? And why is it them that gets to have the monopoly on this commentary of what's considered an emergency? Like, are they going to let the sirens off when they're bulldozing trees at Japarong? No, of course not. Like... (laughs) Are they going to let the sirens off if there's, like, a huge fascist rally in town and people need to know that it's not safe to be in that space? Um, So I liked the idea of challenging those and creating silence or, like, silencing that imperative voice of the state. And what's next for you in this project? What are you hoping the end outcome is, if you do have an envisioning of an end outcome? (laughs) Um, Well, what I'm working towards at the moment is um, I have a solo exhibition at Blindside Gallery in the Nicholas Building next month um, where I'll be, yeah, presenting this experimental technology for the first time to, yeah, an audience, I guess. Um, And so it'll be a collection of, yeah, like sound sculptures um, demonstrating the technology and also just like plans and diagrams and like further explorations of the idea. That opens on the 19th of March. Um, and yeah, it's being produced with the support of Liquid Architecture and yeah, Blindside Gallery. We'll have a couple of interesting like public program events around that. Um, some talks, some shows. The show itself will be open for three weeks. So that's what I'm building up to at the moment. One of the really nice things that's come out of this project since its um, beginning is just these incredibly rich, interesting conversations with people like yourself around, yeah, these ideas. And I feel sure that that conversation will just keep going and going and 
more and more people will start speculating on, you know, ways to better the technology and how you could do the next versions of it. Um, so, yeah, I'm excited for this kind of like public presentation of it because I think it will just fuel the idea more. Um, well, thank you so much, Bridget, for joining me this afternoon because, I mean, I know I love to rave. <laughs> I think there is a bit of a, you know, dichotomy um, where there are a lot of people who do engage in those spaces and that fun, but you've managed to, like, from that point also see um, the ways in which we can, like, reshape our city um, and reshape our politics as well on how we live like our everyday today lives and resist those really like archaic systems such as the police um, and surveillance as well and I think that this project yeah is just like the outcomes could be endless and I think that thinking about sound in this way you're at the forefront of thinking about this especially um, on the cooler nations lands at the moment. Thanks so much for having me it's an honour. <laughs> And that was a conversation that I had with Bridget Chappelle about their work to phase cancel the cops. And you can actually view their work. Uh, there's an exhibition coming up as part of Blindside, and the opening night is the 19th of March from 6 to 8 p.m. So you can look up the details on the 3CR website by following the Liberation Loops series. And a huge thank you to Squidgenini for producing the music for the opening segment. Tune back in next week to hear a conversation that I have with Yung Dang about community accountability and pod mapping. See you next week. Palm trees, we got gum trees, I got you too Give me a beat or tune and, and do 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 Spitting in a room with an ugly view, ugly heads Can't wait till I'm hurting my coffee bed Into the mouth when the public ooze Nothing to lose, guess I'm dead I'm just passing through, something smells and it must be you Looking for clues like SVU It's a crime show called that suburban truth Stood up with awkward urban youth Cockies in my fist, but I'm not hurting you I'm on my early morning cruise she up and I spray, it's the boy from P-A-W-R-A She up and I spray, all over the place She up and I spray, it's the boy from P-A-W-R-A She up and I spray, on the CDJs I like it like that, put the bad pep, put the bad news like that Telegraph and the goon sack, not the bigger man, I'm scrawny but fat Pause, I like it like that, put the bad pep, put the bad news in fact like last night's kebab from gravel a genre with pad. I, I, I don't wanna lose my I, I don't wanna lose my I, I don't wanna get in a blue Do you wanna get smoked like ice become headlines in the other news? I, I, I don't need your likes on IG, I, I, I don't need that dope on me Cause there's the dope MC from CM to the SCT Hold my honey and tea when I G up and I spray It's the boy from P-A-R-R-A G up and I spray All over the place G up and I spray It's the boy from P-A-R-R-A G up and I spray on the CDJs Spray like water jutsu Spray like a full Spray like links in the high school gym Spray that I can see the Ajax Atro make tracks big Thought I should name it Ziz R.I.P. Wanna be him at CBM gym Cause I wanna make hits From work work with the boy boy Girls love this cheeky boy On the hunt for some CD toys Spray them down like I love last toys Boy, it's Sydney not a letter When I'm on deck is over veranda Let's get this Sangus Uncle Cal from Parramatta G up and I spray, it's the boy from P-A-R-R-A G up and I spray, all over the place
up in that spray. It's the boy from PA, double R, A, G up in that spray. On the CDJs. I'm Tash Sultana, and you are listening to 3CR. Please subscribe. Do yourselves a massive favour. Thank you very much. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. You're listening to 855 AM, 3CR Thursday morning breakfast. And that track you heard before was G Up and Spray by Slimset, and they absolutely just rocked it in the sup at Golden Plains on the weekend. Um, and now on the line we have Steph Zhang. Steph is a queer trans writer and journalist of colour, living and working on stolen Wurundjeri land. They were a key researcher on the Australian Strategic Policy Institute's Wagars for Sale report. Welcome, Steph. Hi. Thanks so much for joining us here on 3CR. Thanks for having me. Um, Steph, so first up, I was wondering, um, because, you know, we actually, on Thursday breakfast, we spoke a few weeks ago on the 27th of February with Muhammad Majid Sadiq, um, who's an incredible, you know, spokesperson and leader, um, who talked with us about the plight of the Uyghur people in East Turkestan. For listeners who didn't get an opportunity to tune into that interview, could you just give us a bit of sort of background or context um, about what has actually been going on? Sure. Um, So... There's been this kind of, um, I guess, state-sanctioned uh, movement um, towards uh, cultural genocide um, and kind of social reordering in um, Xinjiang, uh, also known as East Turkestan, um, in China. And what the Chinese government are doing is they are um, moving a lot of Uyghur people into re-education camps um, and... Uh, what we find in the report as well is that they're after the re-education camps, they're moving um, these Uyghur people across the country to other provinces to work in factories. So there's so physically displacing them, basically. Um, and it's been going on for a couple of years now. Mm. And so the Australian Strategic Policy Institute has recently released a report into the apparent forced labour of Uyghur people. What were some of the findings of your report? Um, So the report estimated that around 80,000 Uyghurs were being transferred um, to work in factories across China. Um, And we also found that there were around 83 major internationally known brands um, that were using this forced labor um, at some point in their supply chain. So that includes, um, for example, Nike, Apple, um, BMW, Volkswagen, just to name a few. Mm-hmm. 
And the, yeah, the report, which is available online, contains a lot of really, um, you know, devastating sort of case studies as well. Would you be able yeah. to speak to at least one of them? Yeah, sure. So, um, uh, one of the case studies um, we looked at was um, the use of Uyghur workers um, in the Nike supply chain. Um, and we basically found um, a lot of media reports around um, about around 600 um, Uyghur um, workers being employed in a shoe company in Qingdao. Um, and the shoe company's primary customer is um, Nike. So um, what happens is the, these uh, Uyghur workers are transferred um, to Qingdao, and then um, th- so they make the shoes during the day, and then in the evening they attend um, night school um, where they study Mandarin, sing the Chinese national anthem, and they get um, education to be more patriotic. Mm. Yeah. All right. And, I mean, yeah, it seemed like, I guess this report does feel so important um, because it does really shine a light on the the complicity um, and the role of you know large multinational um, corporations in in the in the oppression of Uyghur people in China, and it sort of forces yeah. um, people to not just you know to to not just like point point a finger at China, but actually to look at the the role of of other. Um, you know, global corporations and company and Western countries in yeah. in facilitating in that that oppression and alleged torture. Um, could you, I guess, yeah, talk a little bit more about um, why it's so important to look at those sorts of global su- supply chains and the sort of the the many layered um, you know responsibility and complicity in terms of what's going on with Uyghur oppression in China. Yeah. So, um, well, I guess. Just the fact that um, there are so many um, internationally known brands implicated and um, this story about the Uyghur people being um, oppressed in China isn't exactly a new one. Um, it has been going on for a, co- like a couple of years or a decade um, and has been quite significant over the past you know, two years. Um, and the way that the supply chain breaks down is just that um, these major companies have um, outsourced their labor um, and, you know, they no longer have control or control with air quotes um, over the sort of labor that their um, their products um, go through. Um, and we... We've been in the process of reaching out to these companies to to find out, um, you know, what their position is on it. And a lot of them just come back saying, um, well, we weren't aware of this or we're still investigating. Um, And it just seems like um, despite them claiming to have done that due diligence, they're only kind of scrambling to do it now. Um, Yeah, it's it's kind of this thing of... um, these companies claiming ignorance, um, and even though that's not really an excuse. Mm, mm. Yeah. 
And it seems to me like that's exactly what, you know, like global capitalism like allows yeah. or facilitates because these companies can be like, oh, well, we don't have any, you know, direct contracts um, with these factories, you know, because it's so exactly. fragmented or there are so many steps in that in that global supply chain that they are able to then like, what, you know, apparently wash their hands. Um, exactly, exactly. Um, so, you know, on that note, um, actually, yeah, and also on that note, um, maybe I was wondering, because also to me what it sort of really highlights is the link between, you know, capitalism and, and genocide, um, and, you know, and other forms of colonization and imperialism as well. Is that something that yeah. for you, you feel like came out in, in researching and writing this report? Um, I think so, yeah. Um, obviously it's, it's been, couple of weeks since it's come out so it's been a bit difficult to kind of make mm. those further links um but yeah just um i guess the way that um these Uyghur people are being sent you know to factories to you know participate in this sort of not necessarily participate but um are being forced under this um this capitalist endeavor of, you know, mm. making profit and making, you know, being the actual cheap, cheap labor themselves. Mm. Um, and I guess to me, it, it more so also um, shows this connection between um, capitalism and the, the, the state-sanctioned violence. Mm. Um, yeah, because they, this is literally... Um, something that the government is doing and they're um, actively being like, hey, um, we can give you free labor for, you know, if you take it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so what are some of the recommendations of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute's report? Um, Well, our recommendations were um, essentially just to... I mean, in two parts, I guess. The first part is um, to allow these companies to um, investigate the forced labor um, and, you know, subsequently not use that labor or um, ensure that the these um, labor's rights are upheld. Um, and we cite the international labor standards as well. Um and the second part would be um, to foreign government to um, increase pressure on the Chinese government um, to end the use of Uyghur forced labor, um, you know, to to review trade agreements um, to make sure that the forced labor isn't, you know, being further sanctioned, um, and to consumers as well to, to be aware of this sort of issue and to make sure that what they're buying, um, you know, comes from places that are with ethical practices. And I guess that also, um, to me, um, adds this extra layer of um, how much is how much are individual consumers responsible Um and it's 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 hard because it's you know 
people don't know or, you know, just don't have the time mm. to look that up. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like that's something I think about a lot. It's like, yeah, how much of that individual yeah. point of consumption, you know, what what can you do at that sort of point? And, you know, yeah, do you, I guess exactly. at the culmination of this report, do you feel like it's important for folks to educate themselves about, you know, what brands are using um, products of bit that have been produced, you know, apparently using forced Uyghur labour? Like, is that something that you would encourage listeners to um, find out more about and take action on? Or do you think there are other more effective ways that people can um, join their voices to support this this cause? Um, I definitely think that being aware is a huge part of kind of activism. Um, yeah, I think I don't necessarily um, believe in the sort of vote with your wallet mentality, but mm. I do think that like being aware of it um, does mean that the companies are held more to account and are more likely to kind of do their due diligence. And that's kind of why the report um, kind of we were hoping would make a splash because it would mean that um, these companies would be like, oh, no, this is really bad PR. Um, we need to look into this and mm. that sort of thing. Yeah. Mm. And it's in, there's a really important point that's sort of raised in the report's recommendations as well about you know, that at the end of the day, it's also really important not to have a knee-jerk rea- reaction and sort of rejection of of Uyghur or Chinese labour. And at the end of the day, what's most important is that any any actions taken don't increase great or like the risk of greater harm for um, Uyghur workers themselves. Yeah. Um, could you just maybe speak briefly to that and how to sort of hold that at the centre of you know any action needs to be centering the sort of you know the the, the safety, well-being, and self-determination of Uyghur people. Um, I think it's 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 hard because I mean I um, personally I grew up in China um, and it's it, it's hard to separate the sort of um, propaganda that the state puts out. Um, so a lot of that was um, a lot of that underpinned the type of report that we put out because um, you know a, a lot of the stuff that they do put out is. Um, propaganda. So I think it's it's important to make sure that this doesn't all come back um, and fall on the shoulders of these Uyghur workers because ultimately, you know, they are not, you know, doing this voluntarily. That's the whole point. Um, So I think it's hard for me to speak on the activism because I'm still, like, personally still struggling mm. with what to do with it mm. um, and, like, how to further be involved in the sort of activism in my personal, like, in my day-to-day life. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I'm not really sure, but I think it's just um, keeping that in mind and keeping the sort of... Um, issue in mind is really important yeah Mm. absolutely and to wrap up how can listeners um find out more um well we have a the full report online um and i think we will be putting out something uh soon as well from asking um 
Yeah, there are a lot of um, great Uyghur activists um, as well that could probably speak more on um, how to get involved as well. Amazing. Thank you so much, Steph, for joining us this morning to talk about the Australian Strategic Policy Institute report into forced Uyghur labour. Thank you. And I think now we'll head to a track. This one is by Mwanje, The Divine.
And that track there is The Divine by Mwanjay. You're listening to 855 AM 3CR, Thursday morning breakfast. And up next, we're talking with Jeremy Wiggins, Project Manager of the Victorian Government Trans and Gender Diverse in Community Health, Health Initiative, led by Your Community Health. Jeremy is also a Churchill Fellow in Transgender Health and the Co-Chair of the Victorian Government Trans and Gender Diverse Expert Advisory Group. Good morning, Jeremy. Hi, how are you? Yeah, really well. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, first up, Jeremy, would you just be able to give us a bit of a, an overview of the history of trans and gender diverse healthcare? Sure. Well, I guess how it has historically been framed um, it is a bit of an, a niche area in terms of uh, trans and gender diverse people looking to get support and uh, assistance uh, with working out uh, when they're questioning their gender, um, and then also accessing hormones or hormone replacement therapy for people who are over 18 or, you know, perhaps young people under the age of 17, 18 uh, would go down a, a child route uh, where there'd be different health care and a different regime in terms of puberty blockers. And then also if people want to medically transition further with making any surgical alterations or body modifications, then um, getting referrals to, to surgeons to undergo sort of gender reassignment or gender confirmation surgery. And it's different for everyone. Uh, I'm sure there's many listeners out there who are, who are transgender diverse um, and some people who may have some knowledge about this. But for those who don't, uh, there's no um, set rule for every person. Um, it's, it's very unique and individual, and, and there's no one perfect way or one right way or wrong way to, to medically affirm your gender. But the history of healthcare has always been based on a psychiatric model of care. So generally, um, hospitals in Australia have, particularly in Victoria, have been uh, received some small amounts of funding. There's never been a large amount of funding in this area. Um, the healthcare system has always struggled to, to keep up with the demand, and Particularly over the last few years, there has been a massive increase in the number of people um, looking to seek treatment um, or support and to affirm their gender, which has really put a lot of pressure on, on the existing systems. Um, and that's also because society is changing. Um, we live in a world now with a lot of digital technology. People are able to communicate with each other and understand themselves and each other and share information and see positive role models in it has created a bit more of a safer and faster way for people to, to recognise who they are. Mm. So there has been a, a massive increase in the number of people. But also the history of healthcare has been quite pathologised. What I mean by that is it's, it's been a medicalised model. Uh, it's been a psychiatric model where it has, in different standards of care or medical guidelines, it's been seen... Um, almost as a disease in, the, in history. It's been seen as a, a disorder um, or, or what, what can be called at, at this point in time gender dysphoria. So it's, it can be seen as something that's negative rather than something that's positive. So a lot of the work that I, that I do and, and many others do, um, many of my colleagues, we, we work to sort of change the landscape of how trans healthcare has been framed and to reframe it in a more positive, affirming um, way where it's based on bodily autonomy, self-determination and, and and based on health and human rights so that people can access health care without being stigmatised or discriminated against. Mm -hmm. And 
What have been some of the experiences of our community in seeking to access trans-affirmative healthcare, both historically and also today? Well, there's, there's some pretty harrowing stories from the past. Um, gender as a construct has, has uh, for, for a while now, been very binary. Uh, so, you know, 10, 10, 15, 20 years ago, if someone was to uh, access uh, perhaps some support to go through a process to access hormones, there would have been a line of questioning or, or a therapeutic practice that was underpinned by that person needing to fit a gender norm of male or female or masculine or feminine. Um, and the, the line of questioning sometimes from different healthcare providers has been uh, insensitive or perhaps inappropriate and it doesn't create a good therapeutic environment for there to be sort of... Uh, some power equity around that dynamic because we've heard of these terms gatekeeping as in historically and even sometimes depending on the practitioner present day, if someone doesn't meet uh, a practitioner's idea of what um, a gender uh, experience looks like, then, then sometimes people can be denied access and, and definitely in the past people have been denied access to hormones and this, this is life-saving treatment for some people. So not only has the practice often been uh, undermining for trans people and it hasn't been person-centred um, and it's made people jump through a lot of unnecessary hoops and increased the number of barriers, uh, the, the other issues are some, the wait lists are, have been incredibly long. Uh, it can take a very long time for, for someone to even get a first appointment. At, at, at times it's been well over a year, sometimes over two years or up to around two years to get a first appointment leaving people very vulnerable, um, waiting, um, waiting to get treatment. So there's a, there's a number of issues uh, with, with this area of healthcare. And, but in terms of transgender health healthcare, where we're at now is where we're looking to expand it beyond just hormones and surgery. And we recognise that not all transgender and non-binary people want to medically affirm their, their gender or, or, or make any alterations. But actually people also just want to experience good healthcare wherever they go, and, and that's a big big part of our agenda right now as well. Mm. Yeah, that, that is, seems like such a vital point to me, that, you know, it's not just the sort of the stereotypes of maybe what people assume trans and gender-diverse healthcare um, specifically focuses on, but actually it's a much broader sort of field of just how can we make all healthcare for trans and gender-diverse people, you know, safe, affirmative and inclusive. And that's right, Yeah. Yeah, and on that, on that note, you know, you um, undertook this incredible Churchill Fellowship to look into um, trans and gender diverse healthcare elsewhere around the world and then, you know, looking at it locally as well. Um, first of all, can you, yeah, what are some of the things that you sort of learnt through doing this fellowship or some of the recommendations you ended up coming up with? Yeah, so um, that was an incredible experience. It was a, a few years ago. Um, and the reason why I wanted to do that is because uh, the work that I had done here in Australia kind of had, had reached a point um, in introducing the informed consent model and helping set up Equinox um, that having international connections really assisted in a lot of that advocacy work. Uh, in creating change and creating systemic change. So going overseas to make, to broaden my networks and to meet other people and observe and see what other health systems operated like and, and how, my main focus was also how are transgender diverse and non-binary people 
involved in the development and the implementation and delivery of these services. Um, and what I found in, in different places, and I started in um, Bangkok um, and ended up going around the world through Europe and then North America and then back home, is that overseas there was a high number of um, transgender diverse people working in these services and particularly in, at senior levels. So there, the, in Bangkok there was a fantastic um, clinic called Tangerine Clinic that was based at the Thai Red Cross. It was fully staffed by trans women. Um, and and they they saw thousands of trans people in Bangkok, and and also throughout uh, North America, um, Canada, and, and and New York and San Francisco, high numbers of transgender diverse people being employed in these programs, uh, being empowered to lead and design programs to support communities. Um, there are obviously issues in different countries in terms of like you know the, the economy or the way that insurance systems work that do further marginalise uh, and make it difficult for transgender diverse people. So we're very fortunate to at least have a Medicare system and, mm-hmm. a, and a public health system, um, but they're, 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 we still have a long way to go here to enable greater access to healthcare and timely access and also quality of healthcare. Uh, and I guess those learnings, uh, you know, have been... I, I, I had so much information and so much data that we had to analyse and sort of integrate into a bit of a report with recommendations and I worked with some really great colleagues around Australia. Um, uh, I flew some people into Melbourne to disseminate and share that information and we, we co-produced uh, a, a report which is the Churchill Recommendations that has about 72 recommendations there across all areas of health including justice health so we're looking at even how um, you know, trans and gender people who are in prisons are being um, treated in terms of their health care. We're looking at housing um, but in general, the the overarching theme is that our health is a human rights issue, and no everyone should be able to access timely, affordable um, treatment, and it needs to be based on self determination, bodily autonomy, um, and we need to be working towards depathologizing trans health. So, removing unnecessary steps like having to have psychiatric assessments unless someone actually is going to benefit or needs to have that assessment done. Um, so, yeah, looking at shifting the paradigm here and looking at mainstreaming trans health so that there are more options to go to and that we um, can open up access for more communities across Victoria and Australia. Mm. And on that note, yeah, what, what, what is some of the, the current work that's happening in this space locally to improve access to trans and gender diverse um, healthcare? Yeah, so we are... We're very fortunate in Victoria. Um, we do have a great Victorian government right now that does support equality, and there's been a significant amount of work in the last 10 years, which I have been involved in, and, and, and a number of other people, Brenda Appleton and, and many other transgender diverse people and different advisory groups. Um, there was a, an investment made in the last budget round um, of $3.4 million um, if by the Victorian government to uh, work in trans health. So there's two projects that have been funded. Transgender Victoria have been funded to develop a peer support um, project. Um, so that's a really essential part, like a, it's like a social peer support, people wanting access to, to community groups and to be able to learn from each other, to be able to gain support. It's highly important. So they're, they're working on that. Then the other initiative that's been funded, which is the one... Uh, I'm managing is the Victorian um, government's uh, trans and gender diverse and community health initiative. So what 
that's led by your community health, and it's a consortium made up of Ballarat Community Health, Austin Health, and Thorn Harbour Health, which is formerly known as the Victorian AIDS Council. Um, and what we are working on doing is establishing two new multidisciplinary clinics, so one in Preston at your community health and, and one out in Ballarat. Um, and what's different is uh, we're going to have peer navigators, and we do have peer navigators based at those clinics. So, your, so someone's first point um, of contact in terms of a face-to-face appointment is going to be with someone of lived experience who is trained with either a social work background or has some trauma-informed care um, approaches to do some goal planning and understand what what uh, a patient or a client needs and then help them navigate the system and provide timely referrals uh, so that people can access what they need in a, in a quicker way. That's bulk build um, and, and that is uh, within the same multidisciplinary setting. So we have GPs, we have endocrinologists, we have access to mental health support um, and we are working on systems to be able to open up our services to all Victorians. So by using um, telehealth, um, digital technology, Skype, even just telephone appointments, and then working with community health services across Victoria to be able to service map who is available to provide uh, healthcare and help uh, transgender non-binary people all across Victoria to be able to access those services. Um, what that means is that we can start to alleviate the burden and the pressure from some of these other um, funded services like the Monash Gender Clinic who, who do really important work but have unfortunately got, you know, they're, 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 they're buckling under the pressure of the number of people that need support. So we need to be working in collaboration with them. Um, and we're really fortunate to have some really important partners and, and, and experienced um, professionals supporting this new model of care where Peer Navigator is going to be working in partnership with the healthcare professionals to provide well-rounded um, support for, for community members. And we're also, uh, through Thorn Harbour Health, they are um, managing a capacity-building initiative, so training lots of health professionals all across Victoria and developing systems to ensure that there's ongoing professional development and communities of practice for these healthcare professionals to be able to continue learning and becoming interested in working with us. So we're really lucky in Victoria. That we've, we've, there's a lot of work happening. Um, you can find out more information on the Your Community Health website, yourcommunityhealth.org.au, um, and we can take appointments now. Amazing. Um, we're going to have to wrap up there, but thank you so much, Jeremy, for joining us. I really encourage listeners to jump online and check out um, your Churchill recommendations for more information on trans and gender diverse affirmative health care. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. And now we're going to go straight into a segment from Power from the Margins 3CR's Disability Day Broadcast 2019 programs by Pauline Vertuna. From a segment entitled Ableism in the Settler Colony, we hear from Latoya Aurora Rule on the intersection of race and disability in so-called Australia's prison system. So my name's Latoya Aroha Rule. Um, I'm a Radria Māori person living on Ghana land in South Australia, Adelaide. I do a lot of campaign work, I would say. So I, I identify as um, an activist scholar. So I do a bit of writing around Aboriginal deaths in custody, but also campaigning, uh, particularly over the last three years on this issue, after the death in custody of my own brother, uh, Wayne Feller Morrison, here in South Australia. So um, what we know at the moment, with some statistics done by a friend of mine, Jerry Thorjard, from Western Australia, 
we know that one in five Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women are incarcerated at the moment, and that's one in seven for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander men, which is like literally some of the highest incarceration rates in the world uh, for Aboriginal people. As we also know, you know, a lot of those psychosocial or cognitive disabilities, so when we talk about, say, like reporting, for instance, we know that, you know, there's always an insufficient amount of reporting and research that actually captures people with disabilities because of the wide range of what that actually looks like. But there's been a few reports done, one by the Human Rights Watch Committee, found such a high level and rate of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in prison have multiple disabilities that aren't being captured by the particular data that we need to be capturing these in. And we only see the outcomes of these high statistics and these rates when people are subjected to different oppressions in prisons and where their healthcare needs aren't taken seriously. So, yeah, in terms of statistics, we are the most incarcerated people in the world right now. I think I first heard you speak at Imagining Abolition last year, which was the conference that Sisters Inside put together. At that conference, there was one session that specifically at the intersection of... uh, It was basically a clinical psychologist, a white clinical psychologist, actually, who was talking about disability and youth justice. That was the name of the session, I believe. And I went to it, and it was a 20-minute talk on how, from the get-go, kids sort of labelled problem children because they have undiagnosed disabilities wind up in youth incarceration, and from then on Mm -hmm. it's just basically a lifetime in the system. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about young Aboriginal people in youth incarceration. Yeah, so particularly uh, for young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples, our young peoples actually, at least in the Northern Territory at the moment, make up 100% of all youth peoples in prison. So there's not one non-Aboriginal person at all locked up at the moment in the Northern Territory. We know that there's obviously huge rates, particularly right now for New South Wales and Victoria, being incarcerated. Some um, reporting has come out through Amnesty International with the Communities is Everything campaign. There's a few other human rights watch communities and the Human Rights Legal Centre that is, you know, publishing on youth incarceration. If we can remember the Don Dale incident, we've had particular images being released to us of Aboriginal young people, you know, in spithoods and, and really being tortured in these places of, of imprisonment as well. And, you know, while we're talking about disability, our young people are actually leaving prisons, and our, all people are really are leaving prisons because of the violent nature of what they do to people. So they're actually leaving prisons with kind of these new issues, I guess you can say. But that's not only that they're leaving into things like homelessness and, and poverty, but they're leaving traumatised. They're leaving, um, you know, after being beaten and bashed by corrections and police while, you know, they spent time inside. So we have to consider the fact that, you know, health needs aren't being met inside, but they're actually coming out with even more health concerns. And that's just not what the state sends people away for. We don't expect people to be injured and harmed during their time incarcerated, but we do know that these are the most violent spaces, particularly for Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people and people of colour and black people, that exist right now in our society if not in you know, the common-day surveillancing of us in everyday society. 
We also know that people with disabilities are particularly kept in places of solitary confinement for not abiding by rules and regulations of the prison system. We know there's an over-representation of being locked up in these, um, in fucking captivity, to be honest. Um, that's what solitary confinement is. The dehumanisation that I'm talking about, this is something that relates back to colonisation. You know, it's, it's particularly just an ongoing systemic issue of racism for people who are already facing those oppressions uh, and injustice and inequalities that's heightened in places like prisons and police cells. So at the moment in South Australia, thankfully through people like Connie Benaros from SA Best, you know, political team in SA Parliament, she's been able to push a new bill in Parliament to actually ban all spithoods in places of youth imprisonment across South Australia which would actually make us nationwide in the colony of Australia mm. to completely ban all spithoods in all places of youth detention. So South Australia is the last one to do that. But we know that those still exist, and in particular restraints still exist in, in adult prisons. So I will hopefully next year be beginning to build that campaign further to look at adults. There's some really strong players across Australia who are really keen to look at those restraints because we know, and when I say restraints, I'm not just, you know, talking about physical restraints through um, different, like, mechanisms, but I'm talking about procedures of restraint as well. So in my brother's case, we've heard evidence and we've seen evidence of corrections officers using their force of their body to restrain my brother. So they fell on him twice, one particular corrections officer. Sorry, when I say fell, I mean purposefully used their body weight to restrain an individual. And, you know, there were over 14 corrections officers involved in that restraint, seven in the van. Um, so when they pulled Wayne out, he was unconscious. Those aspects are really important for us to be looking into because they coincide with other deaths in custody, but also just other complaints, you know, where people have nearly lost their lives and have been hospitalised in prisons because of these types of restraints and, and mechanisms used. They're very dangerous and it's, you know, a form of torture and that's in a lot of ways how it's been called out. In terms of healthcare in prisons, we know that particularly for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, again, there's no culturally appropriative healthcare, so there's no Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nurses um, or medical staff, you know, in the prisons much at all. Can I just also say, for trans um, and non-binary people, there's an insufficient amount of research being done, so I can't even say for those groups what kind of healthcare needs or thinking about disability as well, what kind of access they're receiving because we know that today there are still um, trans women in, in men's prisons, for instance, and so we know that in terms of getting access to, you know, what they need to stay healthy, to stay sane and, and you know, for their social and emotional well being, they're not actually receiving that health care. And so, yeah, in terms of healthcare there's a huge issue as well for people who already have things that they need monitored. If we can think about one example that I have of this is actually one of my friends gave me a call last year when her father was taken from prison and he actually had cancer in prison 
and he fell over in his cell and they didn't know why. He was rushed to hospital and the family actually weren't notified for two days and they were actually accidentally notified. So South Australia has a policy where the family aren't to be notified until seven days if that person is even in hospital. So we think about people in prisons with disabilities. Their families may not even be told or notified that they're actually, you know, aren't receiving the access to healthcare that they need and the advocacy that they need. And then we know that by the time that might happen, if they stay that long in hospital or for their care, you know, sometimes it's too late. This is something that I'm really passionate about. It's like that needs to change. These are issues that just, like, aren't being spoken about either, so it's really important that we do that now. The fact is, is that, you know, the colonial state will never dismantle itself, and so it's not going to give up money to put into research on these really particular issues that focus mainly around Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, black, POC, trans, non-binary, queer individuals in prison because at the end of the day that doesn't really affect colonial project and its continuation you know and so it's really hard to find the resource to do this research in the first instance and then people that are doing them we know that majority of those are white you know great allies a lot of them but it's still just insufficient like we need the resources to be doing this work ourselves. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events.